This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Blank Podcast, the podcast where we delve into those frustrating moments with some well-known people. I'm Jim Daly, and joining me, as ever, it's the legend that is Giles Bailey Phillips. Hey, Jim. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? All right. It's quite a drizzly day here, isn't it, up in London? It's, uh, yeah. It's when, a... we, when I got here, because we're near King's Cross, I came out and it was blissful sunshine, and yeah. I was squinting, and I thought, oh, I haven't got my sunglasses. Um, and now it's torrential rain. It's that time of year, though, isn't it? Yeah, so start of the year. Getting, I suppose you can middle we're heading winter. to. I know we're in winter still, and I suppose spring's around the corner as well, isn't it? I'm glad you said that because I feel like we're in the depth of the winter. So feeling like <laughs> spring is around the corner. Well, is. I went into my <coughs> local supermarket the other day, and they had hot cross buns. So I assume that spring is quite close. I like that. That's nice. <laughs> Makes me feel a bit more positive. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it is a drizzly day, but um, we've got a non-drizzly. Pod doesn't oh, make goodness. sense, does it? Fucking hell, Jim. Take that out. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is, um, it is a bit of a drizzly day, but you know what? We're going to cheer ourselves up we are. with a wonderful guest on this week's podcast. But before we... We'll, we'll mention who it is. It's Jake Humphrey. Absolute legend. Um, but before we do that, should we read out some tweets? I think we should. From our, This is the thing we do now at the start of the pod. We do tweets at the start. Yeah, and then you sort of forget to get them out. <laughs> so I've got a tweet here from Ian dickens and it says finally got to listen to the blank pod episode with dawn french and love her even more could have listened to another hour or so well we could have talked for another hour or so on that one <laughs> yeah. um dawn is absolute marvel um a lot of people have actually come back saying i love her even more than yeah. i already did yeah. and I, I felt the same being in the room with us he was uh absolute wonder so thank you dawn again for that it was a great great pod and thanks for that tweet that was a nice tweet and that was a good pod she was uh Oh, just a legend. Um, I've got one here from Deborah. I've got one here from Deborah Fiona Kay, um, who says I've been listening to the Blank Podcast over Christmas 
which uh, Giles Billy Phillips and Jim Daly host. It's a great podcast and worth a listen. And I found it interesting and fascinating at the same time. Keep it up, guys. That's oh, good. Well, thank you, Dan. Two, yeah, yeah, two good things to be at the fantastic. same time. We're multitasking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got one here from Forrest Rogers. He says, check out Brent Pod, a, a podcast with fascinating guests and hosts who enjoy listening. Love the interview with James O'Brien, another really good one. We're oh. going through the greatest hits now. <laughs> the greatest hits. <laughs> oh, we've done enough pods now. We could do greatest yeah, hits, could, but yeah. they're all they're all good to be yeah. fair. Um, well, look. Speaking of which, uh, our guest this week is, I think, Giles, our first sports TV presenter that we. Yeah, had, I think it I think. is our first sports broadcaster. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's Jake Humphrey, the amazing Jake Humphrey. Yeah, and uh, it's really fortuitous because we got. Um, I got to know Jake a bit on Twitter and we and we talk a lot on the pod about um, our stance on Twitter mm. and social media in general about how we're trying to make it a little bit kinder and more positive. Mm. And we, we talk in depth about that over the podcast and um, how J- Jake's obviously trying to do that as well. Well, he seems to sort of attract a lot of criticism on Twitter um, while trying to put out sort of a positive you know, a positive kind of presence on there. And he goes into into that a bit on this pod. Yeah, and I think he, he's aware that he's in an industry as a presenter, as a broadcaster, and being a broadcaster in football, particularly yeah. now, yeah. Um, he's he's sort of open to criticism, yeah. unfortunately, because, um, you know, football fans world, are fickle. As which we know, yeah. being Palace fans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, other football teams are available. Yeah. Um, but it's really interesting, his stance on that, and, and, and hearing his story, how he got into mm. the career he does, and, and his thoughts on you know, how to kind of deal with what life throws at you. So um, it's a really good pod. I it's think great. And Jake's a really great guy and he really opened up and stuff. And yeah. and yeah, and I think he really, hopefully he enjoyed it as much as we did. I hope so. He was a great guest. And this is Jake Humphrey on The Blank Podcast. Thank you so much for being on the Pleasure. podcast. Thanks for having Welcome. me. Welcome. Thank you. How's it going? Well, good now I've got a coffee. <laughs> it's a proper... I was just complimenting you both on recording a podcast in a coffee shop. Mm. Like that, yeah. That's life goals right there. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, it's great because they've got two rooms here and then they've actually got an on-air thing. So it's actually like... It's, I think it's... Well, we probably should probably happy. do a shout-out to them, shouldn't we? Yeah. Well, yes, we own the Frequency Cafe. Yeah. In King's, is, King's, yeah, Cross. King's Cross, yeah, and I wasn't—I didn't know I was coming to a cafe, so I, I assumed, as you do, I've just come on the train from Norfolk. I yeah. sort of thought, um, oh, it'll be some office block called Frequency, and I'll go in. Some, and I came, and I was like, yes, I nearly <laughs> got, like I'm a coffee addict, right? Yeah. So coffee is your thing, is it? Yeah, and coffee. It, yeah. And do you stick to the one type of coffee? Is no, it always it's a like, I'm just as long as it's good coffee. Yeah, I don't mind, but I'm just devouring coffee for fun. So it's from having kids, basically. I, yeah, yeah. When we, so my first child was born in twenty. 13 and it was got to the point where she was a bad sleeper she was an early riser so I got one of those little Nespresso machines yeah, yeah. and it was so bad that the cup was in position and the capsule was <laughs> in and the machine was on so that in my you know like you you both got children you got, yeah, you've got, got a three month old feel drunk yeah. don't you yeah, like, yeah. you yeah. literally feel drunk with tiredness yeah. so you go in the kitchen and I would just have just about the power to press the button <laughs> and after a couple of shots of um, some coffee bean there I go but I've tried since to get rid of those just because of from the environmental I don't yeah. like the thought of those capsules because you can't recycle them or something well I had a Tassimo machine and similar thing and I upgraded last year I'm very, with my delivery with the, with the proper and nice. I like, you're you like a barista now yeah. at home <laughs> yeah it's got a penny on it yeah I mean and it's got the you can make the frothy milk we'll come to yours for yeah. the next yeah. I know, I know. but it does it, it is something special about making your own coffee 
It's nice, yeah. yeah it's really. I, do you know what? As I've got older, I've sort of taken on this mantra of less because mm. I just think the environment is getting yeah, fucked by us all, basically, and we need to. But good quality, so it's fine to have nice things in yeah, life, of right? We were talking about cheese before. We're so old, yeah. right? <laughs> nice cheese, nice wine, nice coffee, nice tea. Like, know where stuffs come from. Yeah, but just don't have too much of it. Mm. You know, really try and like. But are you quite good at that? Then stopping yourself having too much because I'm. Not coffee. <laughs> when it comes coffee. to coffee. But I've decided from now on, people are only getting secondhand Christmas presents. Right now that sounds yes. no, yeah. That right. sounds crap, right? It sounds like if you know me, you're gonna get a rubbish present. But I think it's I'm talking about like I live in, in I live in Norwich and they've got this really sort of quirky part of the city called the Lanes. My brother runs um, an art gallery and a picture okay, cool, picture yeah. restorers in the lanes. And Around there, they've got all these really quirky, quite small little antique places. Do you know what? You can go in there, you can spend 20 quid, you can get a really nice little thoughtful gift for somebody, and it's had zero environmental impact because it was made 40 years Mm -hmm. ago. Mm. There's even things like, um, you know, with little kids, as yours get older, you'll find that there's constantly reasons to buy them outfits, Halloween, school nativity plays, superhero parties. Do you remember though, when we were kids, it was like your mum would just tie a bin bag around you, a bit of string, (laughs) you'd paint something on a plate and go to school. Now, everyone buys a sodding outfit from Amazon, like Mm, cheaply made in a factory, flown over. It's all these little things that we're not quite seeing. We're quite lucky Mm, in my house. uh, My wife's pretty good at sewing, so she normally, she can muscle something up. But not everyone's able to do that, are they? But I do get what you're saying. In that, you know, we are, we are causing a lot. I think, though, as a, as a, I was to say as a nation, as a, let's, let's say global human race, we are getting more conscious of that. So I think if you were doing like second-hand presents or whatever, or passing stuff on or whatever, I think people are tuned into that, actually. Yeah, I, think, yeah, I suppose so. I, sp- I do not think, though, that a, a lot of the, you know, we absorb a lot of information now on social media. That's where we met you and I yeah, on, yeah. On, on Twitter and stuff. Um I think that if you say that, it's almost like you have to validate everything now. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Like, if yeah. I say, oh, I'm going to try and do a bit less, I have a Range Rover, right? So someone will be like, well, he can't possibly have that opinion because he has a Range Rover, mm. so you can't have that opinion. Well, you can you can kind of do your best, like, without yeah. being perfect. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. I find that a really sort of awkward conversation when you have, a, I don't know, some morning TV show and you've got a vegan on and they have to prove that every single element of their life yeah. It's about being a vegan. Yeah, what you yeah. wore leather shoes, right? Your opinion is invalid. Well, yeah, yeah. why should it be invalid? Why can't we not be perfect, but yeah. still like try our best? But if we all did, if all of us did that little bit extra, I mean, I'm vegetarian, but if all of us cut out a bit of meat or whatever here and there, yeah. then collectively we'd make a big difference, yeah, wouldn't we? Rather than like one or two people going 100% all the way. Yeah, absolutely. What is it there? There's a phrase, something like, don't, don't get rid of good for the pursuit of perfection or something like mm. and none of us are, I'm definitely not perfect here. Well, Jake, no. this, I don't know if you listen to this podcast we don't not in pursuit of perfection either <laughs> yeah I did listen on the way yeah. down here I was like no, I can't, yeah. what have I let myself in for the imperfect podcast that's a nice title yeah. it's a, it's a nice title. Yeah. Oh, it's a nice title it's a nice title oh Charles we should have gone um, blank pod's good enough yeah <laughs> so um, you're from Cambridgeshire originally right yeah Peterborough I was born in Peterborough yeah yeah, yeah. What was that? And then you moved when you were about seven or eight years old. I yeah. went to Norwich. Yeah. So my dad, um, my dad was a charity worker, mm-hmm. and he worked. 
for uh, when you're young you don't quite know do you sort of but basically his job i think was to find social housing for immigrants coming into peterborough right. so we actually lived in this amazing multi multicultural area we i think we were pretty much the only white family on our street in peterborough okay Wow. A little street called Norfolk Street, and it was brilliant. So my sort of memories of growing up... So you lived on Norfolk Street? How funny yeah. is that? And then moved to Norfolk. <laughs> yeah. So I lived on Norfolk That's Street. And, uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> and we had, this, we had this sort of regular run-of-the-mill Victorian house, but we'd come back from holiday, and all of the sort of local Indian kids would be in our back, because we had mm-hmm. this big back garden with a play area, and it was I have these fun memories of opening the back gate and the, had about 100 kids in the garden. As soon as the back gate gets open, they would just go, shoo, and just disappear. <laughs> <laughs> because that was the life we lived. We used to just climb over each other's fences, yeah. play in gardens that were not ours. As soon as you heard like a door go or something, you'd be like, ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, But it was brilliant. So my, my childhood really was being in the back garden and little Indian faces of kids I didn't know popping over, probably quite intrigued because we were the only white family in mm. the street, offering amazing, like, sweet Indian foods and delicacies, and we'd go in and go to their birthday parties. All those sorts of things that you, a lot of white children growing up don't do, like taking yeah. off your shoes at the door, going in and kneeling in the room and passing around all this amazing food. So it's a bit strange then go to Norfolk, which is most definitely not one of the country's most multicultural, yeah. ethnically dominated areas. So it was, um, it was an amazing upbringing. I'm kind of glad we went through that, really. But then... Part my dad sort of blames the Thatcher government, but basically he lost his job. Mm-hmm. And I suppose as a kid you don't really worry about it, but the, I remember the stress of my dad looking for work when he had three children. So he then did an MA. So he used to go to work and then in the evening study for an MA to oh, sort wow, of improve yeah. himself a bit. And then eventually he he found a job again working in charities, but working for Age Concern in Norfolk. And we all moved up there, lock and stock, when I was about seven or eight, and actually lived in an old people's home. And we were right. Do you, do you remember moving much? Because you know that's tricky. Yeah. Tricky any, any age. I remember you know, sort of the started la- to probably embed in school and stuff. Like yeah, that. definitely. I remember the last time we went around our friend's house. We had like a really close group of mates around the corner, and I remember the last time we were there and hiding with all of our friends upstairs, hoping mum and dad wouldn't find us. Some was some <laughs> ridiculous dream that in twenty years we're still going to be hiding. It. We've never moved to Norfolk. We're like we're hiding at the Payton's house on Lincoln yeah. Road. Uh, I remember that. And then obviously I do remember moving into an old people's home because that is a pretty weird thing to do. But basically, mum and dad couldn't find a house. Mm. But dad's job had begun and he was working for age concern. So what's the natural thing you do? Move into an old people's home. So wow. we, we moved into one of the sort of buildings linked to a place called Ethel Tipple Court. Right. Which was an old people's home in the north of Norwich. And I remember, I don't remember his name, but the, you know, I created this really nice friendship with this old bloke and after school, I'd go into the old people's home and just help myself through the front door, walk through the sort of communal residence area, say hello to some of them, go down the corridor, and there was a room with a pool table. Me and this old boy would just sit and play pool. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, yeah. Wow, <laughs> you got a really kind of diverse upbringing then, didn't you? Yeah, I suppose most sort of so. white kids like me, I grew up in Edenbridge in Kent, which yeah. was very white. But you've already grown up with Indian kids yeah. around the corner and then you're moving into an old people's home you're getting all bits of society different before you're and different different yeah. Yeah. and that probably sums my parents up really like my mum and dad are quite liberal left-wing socialist people who kind of want to fight for the underdog my dad especially mm-hmm. i mean like if if i tell you we used to walk down the street and if there was a homeless person we would not walk past them we would stop my dad would crouch down he'd have a chat with them offer them some advice where to go 
I mean, to a point where once the guy was not homeless, my dad tried to offer him his coat and we got chased down the road. So, <laughs> so my dad picks yeah. me up and we're, he's like shouting apologies as we're running away. This guy going, are you kidding me? I'm literally just a bloke sitting on the floor. How dare you? Exactly, how dare you? Um, but I guess that's a little bit where it sort of comes from for me. You know, I, I do have this kind of innate desire to help people and to do my bit. Mm. And I suppose it probably does come from... Partly my mum, who's a teacher, but probably ninety percent really my dad. Who mm. that is a really big thing for him. Well, we are influenced, aren't we, by our parents? I suppose massively. So. Almost without knowing it, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your dad sounds like a legend. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, he's a nice bloke, man. He just uh, he he's the kind of guy that will absolutely see the good in everybody, like mm. only the good, which mm. I suppose is quite difficult because I had that upbringing where everyone's good and then you end up in my world doing my job on social media and it's like it's not like that you try and do the right thing and you just get bombarded and sort of attacked from all angles for trying to do the right thing which it is, is difficult isn't it because I guess as well you know, you've you got a profile and stuff and you probably feel a bit of responsibility to certainly if you've been brought up in that environment I want to help people as much as possible yeah. but there's certainly on social media there's a lot of feeling that people think well I've got to take down people with big yeah, profiles yeah, yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so you probably feel like you sort of bang the head against a brick wall, I guess, at times. Yeah. I, do you know what? The guy wrote... A, I did these videos, which you saw, like, which I want to do some more of, but yeah, they yeah. were just just trying to share some of the stuff that I've learned, right? And from most people, it was really nice, really sort of positive reaction to it. But then there was a little group of football people... Yeah. Who, if you're in the football world, they kind of think they have an ownership to have an opinion about what you do because you must be a football person and only talk about and think about and discuss football. And they're and they were sort of a group of football journalists. So they um, and they they host a podcast as well, I think. And they thought it was funny to use the videos and sort of take the mick at them or whatever. And a guy wrote a piece for the Telegraph about the videos, and he just described it as a suspicion of positivity. And that is exactly what we have. I think we have a suspicion of positivity. Someone has got a positive message to say. We just don't go, yeah, that's really nice. We go, hold on a minute. Why have they said that? That's, you know, if you go on somewhere and go, listen, guys, today, just do your bit. Even if it's not much, try and do a little bit, and I hope you have a great day. You know, Mm. the kind of stuff that you put out all the time of, like, positivity. And you get replies, and I get replies going, oh, fuck off, David Brent. And it's like, (laughs) yeah, that's really clever. But why can't you just think, yeah... Why yeah. not? Why let's just be positive? It's a weird sort of world we live in where we have to be have you, a little a little well, yeah. little stab at that, you know? Yeah, like there's a an agenda there. Yeah. Do, do you think that though that is like that is actual human nature or do you think that's social media bringing out this other side of people that they're not really even like that? I think there's definitely a, a case for that, don't you think? I don't want to think people are like that, really. No. Because um, I think in real life they aren't. If you if you walk down the street or see someone in, in the coffee shop, say, have a nice date, mate, they're not going to say, fuck off, mate. Yeah. They're going to say, oh, thanks, cheers. Yeah, 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 I think you're right. Think so you're... why... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to tell them to fuck <laughs> off, but we're in Piss public. Off, <laughs> not going to do it. Yeah. But I, just, I don't but know. Yeah. I don't know why then online behind this, you know, phone or whatever. Well, because you're faceless, aren't you, I guess? What, so but it's weird. It's a weird mentality. Yeah. Why not just be positive, though? Yeah. Well, why not just do... Why, what bad can come, right, from wanting everyone to do better and everyone to be successful and trying to share a bit of knowledge about things you've been through and whatever, you know? I agree. I totally agree. It's very weird. It's odd, isn't it? Do you get much negativity when you tweet positivity? Bits, bits, but... Um, like what? Well, similar to, you know, it's just kind of like... 
I guess. What's good now with Twitter a little bit more is that, you know, those sort of extended replies, they're yeah. kind of hidden now, so you can actually click whether you want to see them or not. Yeah. It's normally if it's something slightly derogatory or off-topic, it ha- Twitter started to hide them a little bit. Yeah. Um, really? But you, it's too tempting to press it. I, the, I just read something today <laughs> um, that they're going to create a new thing where you can choose to tweet and everyone can reply. Just your contacts can reply, or you can even do like a statement. Uh, yeah, I think they've been talking about. So that. there's no replies. Oh, yeah. oh really? So for example, let's say like football teams in my world, they tweet the team, and, the, and it's just like it becomes an endless stream of ha ha, very good. What's the real team? Yeah. Or yeah, yeah, what's yeah. happened to our club? Or what is what's wrong with our manager? Are you drunk? Question. Yeah, yeah. All this like boring, and it's like you try and scroll through it to see what the fans genuinely think about that team, and you can't. Yeah. You it becomes a pointless exercise. Hmm. Because it's just like who can who can tweet the most nonsense. Like. Yeah. So I can see how for some areas of society that might be quite a good thing. But it's just a, it'd be frustrating because there are lots of people out there who are interesting who have good replies and you want to hear them. And actually, yeah, the true. beauty of Twitter is you do want to interact with people and yeah, yeah, have conversations yeah, and help you kind of form. That's what I love about it. You know, p- mm. you literally are speaking to people who you have never met, probably will yeah. never meet. Yeah. But you can share a bit of thought. They can give you a little something yeah. back. And like, you learn so much. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've had. Generally had a positive experience with Twitter, yeah. but you know, maybe I've just got the right followers. <laughs> but you've got a hell of a lot of followers, and I guess, like you say, you're in an industry, you're a broadcaster, but also you're in, you, you know, you're broadcasting about football, yeah. which again is not, is not a, um, you know, it's a very binary thing. You know, you are on our side or you're on our side. Yeah. So you, you know, it's very difficult, I guess, for you to. I think there's a, f- yeah, it's a fair point. I mean, I, you know, you sometimes wonder why when you work in something like football, you are, you get accused of supporting one team or another team or being biased mm. or clearly that Joe company clearly hates my football club and I'm like oh like the truth is I don't care yeah, yeah. like yeah. actually I like Norwich I support Norwich I literally don't care about <laughs> another football club I love my job I love being on the telly mm. chatting like what I love is hanging around with elite people high achieving people who've mm-hmm. become like top level sports professionals or top level coaches on I love that I'm fascinated by how they've got there mm. But I really don't mind if your football team loses or wins that game of football. It mm. just does not interest me. And then sometimes my wife will be like, "Why does that? Why do you get accused like so much of supporting one team or another?" And it's a bit like Saturday Night Takeaway or This Morning or whatever mm. brilliant TV shows. But people are not emotionally invested in Saturday yeah, Night yeah. Takeaway, <laughs> like whether Antodek wins that challenge. And maybe, maybe some people <laughs> are. Maybe <laughs> some people are. But it's not light. It's not going. You're not going to get that sort of vitriolic no. kind of reaction yeah. to that. Yeah. People are just watching it because they want to enjoy it. Whereas with, in the world that I'm in, it genuinely, and that's what's great about football and why I love it and why it's magical, is that it generates that kind of emotion and that love or that hate at times that very little else can. Mm. You know, brings people together, doesn't it? When England play, the whole country stops mm. and goes, "Whoa, that doesn't happen with very many things." But the flip side is, you are dealing with people who are looking at every tiny little aspect of your broadcast mm. to see whether they think you like or don't like their football club. So I now g- they know I don't care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I feel the same way because I do comedy videos and I I do like spoof Man United fans and Spurs yeah. fans and people will take screenshots of that and be like, you're a Palace fan, why are you wearing a Man United shirt? And I'm like, well, it's clearly a comedy video. How about you be an adult about it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yes, it wasn't very funny, but that's not the point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They've missed the point that it was hilarious. That's the problem. Yeah. I don't know, right, well, that. it was shit, but I know. But, yeah. yeah, I wasn't trying to be a Man United fan. But. Good one. <laughs> 
So obviously, what was school like? So you obviously moved. So you you were yeah. Well, school was tricky actually. Mm. School was good until I moved, and then it then it was bad because I sort of um, I guess I moved in at a time when loads of friend, groups of friends had sort of been formed and yeah, had been created, yeah. and that is difficult. Mm. And I and I think then you you're then in a position where you you try and you try harder basically to kind of wheedle your way into a group. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Instead of just being you and people deciding whether they like you or not, you sort of come in and you're trying to go, oh, yeah, hi, I'm Jake, I'm from Peterborough. And so that was kind of tricky. So my first, my early years were hard. Like year, When I got to a couple of years later, when I started even at high school, years seven and eight were hard, man. I mean, there was one awful moment where I was getting changed from swimming. Mm-hmm. I took down my swimming trunks, right, and a couple of the kids in the class pushed me out the door of the oh, changing room. Oh. But it was out, like, into the car park of the school where there was classrooms all around and everything. So I was standing there, one hand over my knob, one hand trying to, weirdly trying to cover my bum hole for some reason, thinking, <laughs> what am I doing? But hoping no one sees. And slowly you see, like, kids in classrooms are like, oh, and you think, oh, my goodness. Now, that's mortifying enough. But then my mum wrote to the school. And the, one of the teachers made me stand they, in the assembly, the school assembly. They went, right, can Jake Humphrey please stand up? That boy is being bullied. Oh, no. It's like the sort of thing that in 2020 just doesn't happen, right? Because yeah, yeah. they're so smart. But in the when would this have been like the early 1990s, it was yeah. a bit different. And they sort of thought by publicly announcing it. So that was hard. But then, like, then yeah, we, we then moved to a different part of Norfolk. Um, not far away, just a few miles away. And I moved schools. And after that, it was absolutely brilliant. And I loved school. Um, it, like, it wasn't for me. You know, like some people, school is their thing. Like my wife and her family are r- really into academia and yeah. they love all of that sort of stuff. And like one of Harriet's mum's first questions when you talk about someone is, are they clever? And I'm like, well, what does, what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, are they a smart, sensible person or have they got some qualifications? I don't yeah, know. Yeah. For me, clever is like, they're a good person to hang out with. They understand the world, right? Yeah. yeah. They get the best out of those around them. Um, but they love a, a qualification. Whereas, just wasn't really bothered at school. I, you know, yeah. it just no subjects really sort of took you. I liked, I liked them. Like I liked English and I liked history. I wasn't a badly behaved kid, but at no time did it spark my imagination yeah. to be an act to learn and learn and learn. Which now I, I sort of incessantly read books. Maybe I'm sort of making up for that period. Yeah. But I was just kind of probably a late developer, quite immature, not really that bothered. And I did okay at GCSEs, but then I think you pretty much can do okay at GCSEs with loads of effort or not. But the big... Did. did you not? <laughs> what did you get for yours? I literally got one GCSE. No way. Yeah. Josh, which was in English. poor form. I know. Which was in English. But same as you, I just didn't... I didn't really give a fuck didn't about know. school. I wasn't... Again, wasn't particularly badly behaved, but just... And it's sad, isn't it, that you're put into this category of, oh, yeah. that's... Yeah, yeah. That's, he's going to be a failed one. Yeah. He's, he's going to, he'll amount to nothing. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and by year 10, and that, yeah. I, was, they were, I, was all, I was in all the basic, the, the sort of foundation yeah. groups and stuff, because, you know... But maybe it just isn't for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's different, aren't they? Well, um, it's, it's a very young age to be yeah. making decisions about what you're doing next in life or thinking Definitely. about A-levels and GCSEs yeah. and uni or whatever. Well, there's that like, thing, isn't it? Education's wasted on the young, isn't it? So, I mean... That's good. That, think, yeah. I like that. I think mm. that's yeah. probably true. Yeah. And like you, I went... I did like an OU degree, like yeah. um, in my mid twenties, and uh, yeah, I absolutely loved it. 
because it was something I was, you know, really now, wanted yeah. to do. Yeah. Well, I think also now you know what you like. Yeah, right? exactly. So yeah. now, like, if we all went to school, now it'd be great. We'd all choose a subject. Yeah, like. yeah. Be exactly. Really interested. Well, to I learn. change my career every eighteen months. I get bored and think, well, I'll do this go. this time. I'll try this. Yeah. And how many times? Actually, we were. It's funny you should say this because we were looking through some old books. We when we went to pick up the kids from mum and dad's a couple of weeks ago, we were looking through my old school books. And I was saying to my wife, "When have I ever used that information that I had <laughs> yeah. to write layers and layers about back in the day?" Yeah, I said, "Maybe yeah. you do, but you don't realise it." But the sort of the the light bulb moment for me was getting some work experience in the telesales department of the Eastern Daily Press, oh. and getting like this glowing report back saying. Jake Humphrey was the best work experience kid we've ever had. He totally was at ease in the workplace. He could chat to people. We sent him out to do errands and this and that, and he was responsible. And I remember my mum and dad and my teachers, like, the response was, is this the same child who sits <laughs> yeah, in our yeah, classroom really? week in, week What were you out? doing yeah. at, for work, at the work experience? I was, in the t- I was just helping out in the telesales department. Okay. But I still can remember vividly just... Getting into the world of work, and it just felt right. I mean, the mm. job, like, the job was nothing. It wasn't the job wasn't the reason for me thinking, "Oh, this is great." It was being around so adults where we were all on a level. I wasn't the yeah, people yeah, yeah. anymore. I was one of the people in the office space and being given responsibility, and and I, it was kind of like a light bulb moment, really. That the more effort you put in out there, the the more that comes back your mm. way, and that was kind of the first time I experienced that. I mean, it didn't have any impact on me at school because I then went and did my A-levels after that and failed them badly I got an E and N and a what U were, what were the A-levels were you doing? English psychology and politics which was tricky because my mum was a teacher at that school oh, okay. so oh, that was right. and I have I still have this flashbulb memory of arriving home with a with my results in my hand and my dad standing at the window with a bottle of champagne fresh out the fridge looking expectantly oh. and I just went in yeah. yeah and you know that sort of um <laughs> yeah. The sort of image of putting your putting a gun to your head and going <laughs> like that. I just walked in, put the results on the side, and went <laughs> as if to say my head's gone. Yeah, this is and yeah. then what, I went upstairs and sort of let them dissect it themselves. But mum and dad had this had some guests with them, and the the woman who was there, she she wasn't like a psychic, but she's someone that sort of felt she had power to sort of understand situations. Mm. I remember I remember this, and she came upstairs and she said, "Just so you know, this is the best thing that's ever happened to you." And it even gives me goosebumps now when I think about that. And I looked at her thinking, you've got no idea. <laughs> just failed my A-levels. Yeah. My mum is a teacher at the school. My place at university has gone begging. My dad's drinking champagne. Don't know what I'm going to do. I've missed out on a glass of champagne. <laughs> this is a nightmare. Yeah. Um, and then, weirdly, I went back to school because you had to write a letter in those days to the school to ask if you could go back again and redo it. Now, you can imagine how embarrassing this is because all my mates had gone off uni, travelling, doing all the fun stuff and I'm back out of school and even kids a year below, do you remember you never spoke to them did you? No. They were like little kids (laughs) you would not speak to a kid a year below you suddenly I'm in their class and they're looking at me like he's the older kid, why is that guy from the year above back here Yeah. but it's just a case of swallow your pride and yeah, yeah, big time, yeah so I went back and the day I returned, the very day, my politics teacher Mr Brogan had a letter and it was from a local TV company called Rapture Television, who were setting up in the Anglia TV building in Norwich, looking for politics students to go on their show and talk about politics. Now, if I'd have got a place at uni, that would I'd have been at uni. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would never have known about this letter. Um, so I was there. 
responded to the letter, actually went in, saw them, and said, look, I, I know you want people to come and talk on your show about politics, but actually... I've failed my A-levels. I know this isn't like a great sale. I'm basically a failure. Can I come and work with you? So I just said to them, I've messed up my exams. All my mates have gone off and doing more exciting things. Why don't I come in and work for you? So I used to work for them. And I used to get, I work all day Saturday and Sunday, moving sets, answering phones, doing the auto queue, sound system, whatever it was. And I'd get five pounds cash at the end of, at the end of Sunday. Wow. So what sort of shows were they put? Was it kind of news? The show, yeah, it was a youth channel called Rapture oh, okay. Television and they were producing loads of original content and I worked on a show called Exposure, which I suppose you would say is like a magazine show, yeah, a bit okay. like Live and Kicking. I mean, we're yeah. talking absolutely minuscule budgets, really yeah, everyone yeah. just everyone <laughs> mucking in and helping out and they ran a competition, but they didn't really have any viewers. So they didn't get any entries to the competition. So me and the other work experience kids were asked to enter, which involved making a home video. <laughs> so I made a home video. And then I'm sitting, and I remember operating the auto queue. And it was a live show. It was a live two-hour show. I'm operating the auto queue for the presenters. And they announced me as the winner of this competition going to Paris to host a programme. <laughs> so there I am. From failing my A-levels, I'm in Paris <laughs> recording a show with them. And then a few months later, the presenter, a guy called David, left. And they said to me, look, He's left. We need someone to stand in and host the show. You were quite good in Paris. Do you want to do it? So within that year of failing A-levels, I was doing a live TV show, Saturday and Sunday, and the best part was they doubled my money. £10. £10. £10. Amazing. (laughs) Going up in the world. So but how did it feel doing those? Did did you feel natural? Yeah, straight away. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. that's the. F- I've never found it difficult being on the television, which is also strange because at school I was not. Everyone assumes I did, you know, drama yeah, and amateur sure, dramatics yeah. and was involved. I was the quiet kid, man. I was not. Didn't do any of that sort of stuff. I didn't do any drama. I wasn't in any school plays. I can't dance. I can't sing. I, I suppose I just. I, I just like talking and sharing experiences mm. and I suppose the, the biggest thing really and it's always hard in it talking about your own skills but I guess empathy and um, part of the issue why I struggled a bit at school early on and was the teacher said he's just a bit sensitive like most of your seven and eight boys are just barreling about kicking a football and he's a sort of a bit more into how people are feeling emotionally or what's working and what isn't in there. We'll soon jump that out. Exactly. <laughs> we'll sort that out. Take his pants off and push him yeah. out that door. And then we'll announce it. In exactly. <laughs> we'll desensitise that young man. But I think that, yes. that was then the thing that maybe helped me in my job, you know. Mm. Yeah, but for what you were telling us earlier about growing up, you know, with all these families in the back garden and then playing pool with mm. the old boy in the old people's home, Clearly, there was a connection to other people there already. Mm. It's funny, though, isn't it, how life just throws these little things your way? Yeah. And sometimes they can be an absolute trauma. Other times they can be almost insignificant. Other times you can realise their significance at the time. But actually, when you get to the age that we're all at, you two are probably younger than me, but when you get to this age, you're like, you can finally put the pieces together. And it's difficult to explain this to young people, isn't it? Because, like... As you're going through and you're trying to join the dots of life, you can't actually see at that moment where the next bit is you yeah. need to join. Only afterwards do you go, aha, right, it was this that led to yeah. this, that helped this, who spoke to this person, that meant I went there, so I did this. That's what's really difficult when you try to explain to your kids, or even anyone, when they say, how do you do that? You're like, well, kind of just happened, but you, you just have to have an open mind for yeah. trying to join the dots as you go along, you know? 
or just be mm. open in that moment to just kind of exist and live through yeah. it and be like, okay, this is happening. I yeah, don't really yeah, know yeah. what it is or where it's going, but it might be something I'll look back mm. on at some point and just... But it's hard, because like you say, they can be traumatic moments, they can be nervous moments, exciting moments, but sometimes it's just about being in that moment and living yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But it is, it is difficult. So that lady was kind of psychic, then. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. That's the thing, and my parents always remind me of her. They're like, don't forget what yeah. our friend said. You know, she... She knew it was a. She knew it was going to be a good. Weeks later, she won the lottery. <laughs> well, that's the thing. If you, if you really know what's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So you did. So you were working for Anglia Television. Mm. So what was the next move after that? Then, did things start happening quickly, or was it? Well, yeah. So I always enjoyed my time on. Um, on the telly, like I loved just being on the telly and I did find it easy and then I was working in the office so I then got offered a job basically, I suppose that's the next mm. bit to tell you is that I was doing this sort of £10 a week thing until my A-levels finished then they offered me a job and it was six or seven grand a year working on Rapture TV and just sort of getting through really mm. And but those were, were again at the time, I didn't realise it but if you ask me now, the most formative period in my whole career, it was then mm. because I was having to learn so much about the industry because I was working at a place that had no money so everyone had to do every job yeah. that was brilliant and I applied, I, someone said to me you need to create a showreel and I wasn't really sure what a showreel was but I I asked them and they said, oh, it's like your best few minutes. So I created, I remember sitting with an editor, paying them a few quid and creating loads of VHSs and I typed out my name on all the, you know, the labels that used to yeah, go on the yeah, spine. Yeah. Jake Humphrey and then my phone number and sticking them on for hours and then just posting them to any TV show that I wanted to work on, basically. And one of the early ones that came back was, um, was Blue Peter. And I remember going in and meeting them in the Blue Peter Garden that was like a big deal oh, amazing. for a young guy that's a like, big wow, deal this is the Blue yeah. Peter Garden and then <laughs> I got through to the audition process for like the final three people Wow! and I thought wow this is this is my moment I'm yeah, going to yeah. be a Blue Peter presenter that is the lifelong dream right yeah yeah, yeah. Get the badge. So I went down, <laughs> and I re- and I still have such a sort of like vivid memory of that of that day. I remember I had to meet a, an animal called a kinkajou. Have you even heard of what a kinkajou is? No. Look no, it up on you. If no you idea. listen to this now, Blank Pod, look up kinkajou. <laughs> it was like a sort of little bit like a koala bear, from what I remember. But I had to do an interview with the guy holding a kinkajou. Oh, because you could interview the kinkajou. <laughs> no, that would what be. Time? We're really going to see your skills. Classic Blue Peter. <laughs> yeah. We're going to see how good <laughs> Dr. Doolittle's <laughs> And then what did I have to do? I had to jump on a trampoline and then do a make. Wow, they really put you through the videos. Mm. And they filmed it. So it was. Right. So they, that was the first time that they kind of showed the audition process on the show. So I ended up okay. on Blue Peter as one of the auditionees, oh, and it was wow. when Simon Thomas ended up getting the job. Yeah. So, do you know what? Every time I go into my mum and dad's lounge, the smell of their living room, and even now, every time I walk in, reminds me of the day I got home from that audition. I think my senses were just so... Like, everything was just raging. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it was yeah, such a yeah. huge thing. I was at TV centre. Yeah. I was in late teens, maybe my early 20s. I was suddenly in Studio One at the BBC yeah. with all these massive cameras and the Blue Peter presenters and the lights and the smells and jumping on a trampoline, doing my dream job, and then suddenly I was back in a living room in Norfolk and it was like... Yeah. You know, like a movie where someone goes, where they go backwards yeah, through time, like, yeah. Yeah. it was like that, and I was like, whoa, that just happened to me. So I still get memories of that. But then the next day, or even the day after that, my dad woke me up in the morning and said, I got a letter for you, and it was literally 
thanks very much for auditioning for Blue Peter number presenter number thirty four. <laughs> you weren't successful on this occasion. Here's your showreel returned. I was like, oh man, they're not even keeping hold of the showreel. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, <laughs> oh dear. But was, did it feel like a bit of a kick in the teeth? Though? Yeah, yeah, it did actually. Yeah, I was. I remember just going, oh no. But actually, quite a good thing to prepare me for what was to come, which is an industry where you basically have to accept criticism yeah. and knockbacks and negativity and it's it takes a lot of time to get used to it because it's always very personal in mm. my job like yeah. even then I remember a f- couple of years later speaking to the person that decided it was a no and I remember them just saying like, oh you know you just didn't connect with the camera enough or you didn't show warmth well enough or we didn't think that you were quite ready you didn't look right it's all it's always quite personal yeah, right? yeah, yeah. if you don't yeah, like yeah, a tv yeah. presenter it's quite a personal thing, you know, that's, it's a subjective industry, so you have to get used to that, and that was probably quite a good early lesson for that. Um, but then, amazingly, the lady who was in charge of the auditions process was a woman called Amanda Gabitas, and there was another guy called Paul Smith, who was um, head of music at the BBC at the time, and he rang my... I went back to Rapture, just carried on at Rapture TV as I was, and I got a phone call. And this guy said, "Hello, uh, can I speak to Jake Humphrey?" I said, "Yeah, speaking." And he said, "I was watching your, um, I was watching your show at the weekend. You were a shining star in a sea of shit." <laughs> <laughs> so he wasn't a big fan of the actual yeah. channel, but clearly thought I was okay. So while I was at Rapture, he invited me to come to London and host a few episodes of a show called Top of the Pops at Play, which was on Play UK, and it was in the evenings between four and six, and it was just playing music videos, but it was like Scott Mills and Josie Darby, Vernon Kay. So again, it was a good good little first thing for me to just start to see life outside. And with all those guys at a similar level to you, were they... they No, they would have been much much more established. I was kind of the guy coming in and having a go and seeing how I got on and always sort of going for a bit of feedback afterwards. Um, And generally being told I wasn't quite ready, but to keep trying and and I carried on. Didn't have the warmth. (laughs) And then a few months after that, Amanda Gabitas, who'd sorted out my Blue Peter audition, and this guy, Paul... They were tasked with finding presenters for the new children's BBC channel. And one of them would have mentioned my name, and the other one would have gone, ah, oh, well, I know him. Cause, and then that was it. They offered, me, they offered me a job, so I moved from Norfolk to become a children's BBC presenter, and I was sort of one of the first presenters at the launch of the new channel in 2002, early mm. 2002, which was just the most amazing mm. opportunity. But again, it was a kind of a realisation of how fortunate I was and, you know, I always sort of, like, I'm a big believer in fate, right? Mm-hmm. And I suppose you have to be, because not only would I have not been in that position if I hadn't failed my A-levels, it kind of, things just fell into place. I sort of felt, and I do feel now, like, an extremely fortunate, lucky person to have to have been in that position, you know, that those two people just so happened to be the ones charged with setting up that channel. But I guess it's the same, on the same respect you you do we do make our own luck as well and the fact that you put yourself out there yeah. in the first place and actually went for those auditions with blue peter and stuff which you know some people might not have had the nous or yeah. you know um the gall to do that yeah so i guess you know putting yourself out there was was important as yeah, well. yeah probably but it's quite easy i think at that age you know you're so um fearless i think you say so, yeah. yeah you're fearless you're not sort of knocked down by all the things that like 
I think if I now know what I know about the world, I would I would be much more reticent at that age to just get myself to London and walk into mm. an office and, hello, here I am, I'm your next Blue Peter presenter. Yeah. And that sort of fearlessness is quite a good thing, really, you know? Mm. Yeah. I think. So yeah. that was that was me in London then, and that was the beginning of my time on... I'm just TV. thinking, Shining Star in a Sea of Shit is a good <laughs> name for a book. Yeah. 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 There you go. <laughs> I'll put that in my back Throw it out there. Remember that, yeah. <laughs> so what was that like then moving to London? Because obviously that's the bright lights of the city. And I guess, yeah, it is cool. it another one of those sort of moments, you know, where you're thinking, it, oh, this is... It was great. This is the yeah, moment. It was brilliant. Mm. Uh, you know, going to work at the BBC as yeah. a children's BBC presenter was just amazing. Yeah. And every day was... Did, was yeah, did you feel involved? In yeah, most definitely. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, do you know what? I, I suppose I felt good as well because... Mm. Like the BBC had employed me to work mm. on their channel. I Foundation, felt, didn't, yeah, yeah, I definitely, totally. definitely felt, oh, I'm actually okay at doing this job. Mm. And again, that was such an important period for me because on you have to learn by your mistakes, right? I mean, you spoke about this on the podcast that you did with Ben Miller, didn't you? Like, miss, I am a firm, firm believer in making mistakes. And I had to make mistakes somewhere to learn what the problems were. Now, if I made those mistakes now on a Premier League football game, it's a very high-profile place to be pulled down a peg or two. Mm-hmm. On kids' TV, on the CBBC channel in the early 2000s, I made an inordinate number of mistakes, and was it was okay. It's a bit like a pilot. You know, you need mm-hmm. to do a certain number of hours to get your wings, right? Yeah. And I think it's like that with, with television. And it's a shame now that there's so much less live TV. There's no live channels on air for 12 hours a day like we were then, mm-hmm. because that's where the next breed of presenters have come from. Mm-hmm. And if you look at everyone from Anton Deck to... You know, Holly Willoughby and Philip Schofield and Fern Cotton and all these people have come through that world because you learn you learn how to do it. And that was such an amazing time and I learned how to be a presenter effectively, which has sort of stood me in good stead following on from that. Um, the, I suppose the only difficult period then was I remember my mum and dad leaving and that was hard, man, when they just dropped me off at my yeah. flat yeah. and they left. And I actually went through quite a dark period then which you would now say it was a mental health problem. But in those days, you were just thinking, what is, what is wrong with me? I, like, I, ju- I just felt, genuinely believed I was mad, basically. And it was a really weird time because I went from this super confident guy on the telly and I was still working every day on Children's BBC, but not eating and getting thinner and thinner and just really struggling. And I went to see someone, which I think was the absolute best thing I could have ever done. And she kind of just explained to me that this is a really common thing that young men go through. Yeah. Um, it's a period that you, where your brain is kind of either catching up with what's gone on mm. or just trying to work it all out and deal with everything that's gone. You know, I wasn't a guy that had been through a, a trauma. I was someone that was really lucky and had this great job, and that almost made it worse. You know, mm. it was embarrassing to say, mm. I feel like crying. I feel, I feel like I felt like I was mad. I didn't really know what, in what respect I felt I was mad. Mm. But I remember one time looking on the internet to see if I could employ a bodyguard, right, to be with me all the time to make sure I didn't do anything mad. Wow. But that in itself is a madness, to look for that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it, that, was, that was the one period in my life where it maybe was all a bit much for my brain to deal with because until then it had just been this flow of good stuff. And it was almost like... Um, don't know. Maybe it was like a reprogramming phase, maybe that my brain went through or something. But that yeah. was it was tricky. I don't know if it's because you you got to where you wanted to be, maybe. Yeah. Um, and then, but also you didn't have your family around. Yeah, that was probably yeah. part yeah. of it. I suppose. Yeah. yeah. You do need that support 
network, especially at that age, of course, like early 20s or something yeah, like that. It's, it's a young... Yeah. People in their early 20s are young, you know. And I young. think of it, you know, often when I see really sad stories of, you know, young men, and we all know the biggest kid of men under 40 is suicide. When mm. I see stories of young guys, I often think, I wonder whether they had exactly the same experience that mm. I had. I mean, instead of going and seeing someone... They take the they take the alternative mm. they take the alternative route and I, you know my um my grandma killed herself, and I suppose I, that f- created a weird relationship with suicide for me and I remember someone saying at that time the irony with suicide is that by killing yourself you've shown you're actually strong enough to live, and I think someone saying that at that mm. time it meant that when I did go through this difficult period, even when it was horrible suicide was not even an option for mm. me because. Because of that message that if you've killed yourself, you're strong enough to live. So whenever that thought even entered my head, yeah. it was like, well, if if I can do that, I'm strong enough to live. So therefore, I need to stick around. Yeah. And that that was that was you know again like a horrendous traumatic period for my family when my grandma did that. Ten years later, maybe saved me. I, I don't know. You don't know. No. Yeah, but you made that decision to go and see someone, and it's that reaching mm. out yeah, and yeah, finding yeah, a support yeah. network. And you might not have the family literally with you, but you're then finding support from a counsellor or whoever. It's a it's a big step to do, and it's, yeah. it's at that again at that age. That's a really bold step to do. It is, I, and I just like to think that it's easier than ever now. You know what I mean? To yeah. go and to to speak to people about whatever you're thinking, whatever you're feeling. I have to, my now wife, who was then my girlfriend, was brilliant because. She she didn't judge me at all. She just went, of course you're not. Why don't you go and speak to someone about it? And mm. I'm, and the fact that she didn't go, oh really? You think you're mad? I I think mm. I might go and go out with someone else. Then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is a equally perfectly normal and understandable reaction. The fact mm. that she went, nonsense. Yeah. Go and speak to someone and you'll be fine. That was probably really helpful mm. as well. I think. But there, there is an embarrassment I think attached to it. Again, keep going yeah, back to that age. At that age, you're embarrassed about yeah. everything. But I think there is an embarrassment I don't know attached what, to I don't it. I don't know what we do though, because you know we're trying now, aren't we, to go. To do the total opposite of what it was like when we were kids, which is talk, yeah. talk, talk, yeah. talk, talk, yeah, yeah, talk, yeah, yeah. talk yeah. to anyone and everyone about anything and everything. And I, I don't know. Maybe it's too soon to know whether this is the answer. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Whether the stats will back up that in ten years' time, this period now, mm. where it kind of feels like we're talking more than ever, yeah, was was the defining yeah. did moment. It, did, it, did it make a difference? Yeah, I think so. But you, you always feel a bit better, don't you? I mean, we sometimes after doing these podcasts, we come away. Th- I just feel, go home on the train and feel a bit better just from having a chat with someone, yeah. having a bit of a connection, yeah. maybe revealing one or two things about myself. But I think, I don't know if it's just because we are social beasts that we just we are, yeah, we need do, a bit yeah. of a chat. And even if the mm. chat isn't like really deep about how you're feeling, maybe it's just about how you're feeling that day or something that's happened to you in the coffee shop or whatever. But it's just that little that little connection. Yeah. In yeah. a world where we're probably less connected than ever because we're using these phones. And, yeah. You know. Yeah, which is the sort of weird thing of it, isn't it? The weird, you know, like the social media was created so we connect with each other more, but we've come to a point where we're connecting even less. I yeah. mean, I've made a real um, point this year is I want to see people in the real world more. Yeah. Yeah. Spending less time on there. So important. Yeah. Yeah. Because we do, like you say, we're social animals and we need we need human connection. It's unhealthy, I think, don't you? Yeah. Mm. And I think it's sort of, it changes so much how we perceive the real world as well because we're all looking at social media which is not real yeah. which is and all of us will admit to it i'm sure that even what we do and i you know i'm not the sort of person that just wants to do and make, make my life look amazing like oh here i am on holiday 
but you still like you don't put the boring shitty stuff do you on there like I've just been to the toilet <laughs> or, a I've just fallen down the stairs yeah. I've just eaten a weed a bit I've just bumped yeah. my car N- none of the, you do something amazing and it's like a natural human reaction I'd go oh I should better put that on Instagram oh I might tweet about that yeah. so even though we don't want to overtly show off what feels shareable is the big yeah. stuff and the good stuff and the special stuff so then we end up looking at good special amazing lives through the lens of our own normal lives yeah. and everyone's life feels normal by comparison to what they see on social media so yeah. I think god it's unhealthy man it is but comparing is... real to fake like yeah. completely compare and despair completely it, yeah. compare and despair yeah. really yeah because that's what you're doing you're we'll comparing it. yourself to yeah. other things someone's doing better than you at certain thing or you know like your podcast is not as good as someone else's whatever it might be but it's and, yeah, you know, even then, like and then you putting yourself into a position where someone tweets, yeah. "Oh, so so delighted that my podcast won an award." Naturally, you two then go, "Well, what? Yeah, bloody yeah. hell, man!" Now, for yeah. all you know, it was some podcast award that no one's ever heard of yeah. that might their mate might have been on the panel. It doesn't. It doesn't or for matter. A category that we're never going to be. There in. you go. Yeah, but you naturally go. They won. I didn't. Yeah, oh, yeah of course. Yeah. Despair. Yeah, yeah, and it, you. Don't compare yourselves with anyone else, I think, is the answer. Well, I do that with other comedians. I see comedians doing gigs, being like, oh, this gig was brilliant. And I think, why am I not getting booked for that gig? And then I think, I didn't apply for that gig. There you go. So so now, if I see it, I try and follow them and send them an email and be like, can I do a gig or something? Just plowing your own furrow, right? Yeah. And it's not easy. It's so not easy because we're in a world now where we're constantly shown everyone else's stuff, which we never were before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But if you can just do your own thing, away from everyone else and yeah. be happy with what you've done yeah that is the healthiest and best way to be right yeah has to be has to. and your, you will get this better this is your life this is your yeah. story man it doesn't matter what, it yeah. does not matter what everyone else is yeah. up to or what they've done or not done yeah this is your story agreed agreed and then you will get happier you'll get better yeah. you'll meet other people you'll make those connections everything you wanted will come if you just yeah I totally agree your own story that's a really nice way of putting it mm. really nice way of putting it so um, do you have a bit of a love-hate thing with social media generally? Yeah, yeah, I do really, yeah, I do. Because I'm not a natural social media I don't feel very good at it, do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, and I don't, re- I don't quite also know why I do it. Mm. Like, there's loads that I don't put on there. And then I find myself doing really, uh, like, fun stuff, like being in the garden with the kids. And part of my brain is going, well, maybe you should let people know that you're doing this so that they can realise you're a cool guy with a couple of kids and you're having a great laugh yeah, in your yeah. garden and everything's lovely. You're and then bloke, yeah. another part of the brain goes, well, what? why the fuck do I want to share yeah. this moment yeah, yeah, yeah. with anybody else? Yeah. This is like, it's really, and it's a difficult thing to get your head into, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, is there a weight of expectation because you've got quite a large following as well? Yeah, I think so. And there's also this sort of expectation that if, you know, like, so my, predominantly my work is on BT Sport, right? Mm-hmm. So if you don't subscribe to BT Sport or you don't like football, you might not, you might not see me on the telly. So then this is the voice in my head going, oh, you better be tweeting about all the, st- all the other stuff you're doing so people who don't watch BT Sport know that you're mm-hmm. really successful and you're doing great and your life's good. And, you're... and then again, I think, well, why? Like, yeah. can't I just be me? And I, like, this is me talking very honestly here. Yeah. And I think a lot of people maybe feel the same but maybe wouldn't say it. Mm. It is a co- For me, personally, it is a constant challenge. It's like a tug of war. Yeah. I do a tweet, it gets loads of likes, I feel great. 
why do I feel great about that? Why the fuck does that matter? Exactly. Right? Exactly. Why does that matter? Yeah. But it sort of does, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Get like, the dolphins yeah. yeah. It is, but it isn't. Yeah. Like, you know, some of the videos that you do, like, that you share on your Twitter account, Giles, I think are brilliant. But I'm sure the truth is, if you go on there and it's had 7,000 likes, you're like, woo! Yeah. <laughs> Nailed it today. 70,000. <laughs> 70,000. Yeah. And if you yeah. get 150, you're going, oh, yeah. well, that didn't fly. Oh, went, oh. Yeah, yeah. But again, it's a strange metric to judge your success by, isn't it? Yeah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. But then we're in that world. So I would, I'm going to sort of consciously, with my social media, I'm I'm going to try really hard not to show off because I think it's bad for other people's Mm. mental health. It's also not the truth. Like there are some parts of my life that are brilliant, like everyone's. There are some parts that are shit. Yeah. So. If I'm, I'm either going to show all of it or none of it. Yeah. Probably none. Yeah. Right? It's better than, yeah. than cherry picking the good stuff. But I also think um, I just, I want to really try to be a bit like you actually and just be positive on social media. Mm. No snipes, no little, oh, I'm going to reply to that. Mm. Just, just spreading the good stuff. Imagine if we all just put up positivity on there. It'd be good. And that's why I wanted to do those videos towards the back end of last year because I suppose... Part of the you know the story that we've discussed really of failing the A levels and having a little sort of mental health episode and losing a family member in a traumatic way and you know suffering with bullying and you know not coming from a family in, who work in the media just kind of plowing my own furrow and ending up where I'm now like I'm not Mother Teresa right I don't claim to be but I like to think that there are elements of what I've learned along the way and how I've got to this point that might just be helpful for somebody you know because I think we assume certain people get certain things in the world and I do not believe that I honestly think you can create from this life whatever you want right Mm. and there are there are ways to do that and I think the number one way is taking complete responsibility for every single thing in your life I'm a firm believer in um, fault versus responsibility so you know if you have a traumatic episode as a child it's not your fault of course it isn't but do you know what it's your responsibility to deal with that and to live the life you want if your wife walks out on you hopefully it's not your fault it might be but mm. if it, even if it's not your fault when it's your responsibility to deal with that yeah. mm-hmm. you know in all these situations it's yours and if you can get to a point mentally where you think right I'm going to take even if it's absolutely not to my fault Right. If I walk out of here now and get hit by a cab and it breaks my leg, it's still my responsibility to kind of deal with that, go to the hospital, get my leg repaired, try and work if I can't work. Do you know what I mean? It's not about, well, he drove into me. I can't mm-hmm. believe he did that. Because mm-hmm. the longer you're thinking about the, the fault, the less time you're taking the responsibility. And I mean absolute, total responsibility for every single part of your life, every single one, your health, your wealth your house, your kids, your mental health, your physical health, your friendships, your failures, definitely your failures as well as your successes, Mm. everything. If you can do that, it's the most empowering thing and that's kind of where I want to try and get to in 2020 if possible. See see where it goes because what's the point blaming anything else? Well, also in that moment of blaming people, you're just sort of wasting time that could be spent taking responsibility responsibility, and cracking on and finding the positive in it and turning a negative into a positive experience. Mm -hmm. We don't have much time on this planet and any time wasted blaming other people is is life ticking away again. So, yeah, I think that's a good way to approach 2020. What do you think? 
I think it's... Does that make sense? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, and actually we talked on a previous pod about the thought and responsibility thing with Jess in Piazzi. Because mm. um, it is an empowering thing. I think we all need to do that more. We definitely all need to do that. But, but it is difficult. It is, it is difficult. Because it, yeah. it also means no excuses, though, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. And that's the thing that even when you try and do it, you can always hide, like, excuses is something to hide behind, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Why is yeah. that not job not worked out? Well, my boss didn't like me. All right. That's an excuse you're hiding behind that. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, what about your responsibility? Yeah. But even that, ownership. my boss didn't like me, why not? Well, is it something I can change? Is it something yeah. I can work on? Can yeah. I work harder in a certain aspect yeah, or something? Yeah, yeah. And like I can't, it? maybe I'm wrong, but I can't see any negatives in it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Can there, is there a negative there somewhere about taking complete responsibility, apart from the fact it probably puts a bit of pressure on yourself and... That could lead to problems, but I, is there anything bad about just saying, right, well, it's difficult. taking responsibility? It's difficult. Yeah, and I think that's the thing, isn't it? But if you recognise that, you recognise that it is difficult, this isn't going to be an easy step. Well, Does that help with that? it? You know, and like I was thinking in your life, you've, you know, when you had that mental health crisis, you, you, you recognised that that was what was happening, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you, and you took responsibility for yeah. it, yeah. and you did yeah. something about it. So yeah. you, it's, it, these are the sort of things you've been doing yourself anyway, probably yeah. without really realising it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. With support, though, from my family, which of course, is also a crucial, of yeah. a crucial part of it, I suppose, isn't it? But, yeah, yeah. No, we do need we do need that support. Oh man, I'm, there's a lot of takeaway from this pod this week. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is. yeah, well, it, we always feel like that's it's why I like this pod because every week from pod I come is away with, yeah. with, with something different to think about, <laughs> which is um, which I think we all need keeps us yeah. keeps us. It's nice just to sit and chat though. I mean, uh, for people that can't see this, um, there's no notes in the room. There's nothing. It's just literally no. sort of. <laughs> we do not, we, you consciously do it like that, right? We don't do prep. You do prep. I've made some notes, but I thought you know what? Sometimes you don't need them. No, well, yeah. I think some. Oh, again, you'll know. So sometimes yeah. you're, I mean, you're you sit in the pub with your mates with notes going. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now Jim said something in 1996. <laughs> Wait, Charles. Charles is round last week. Now it's my round. But it's funny though, isn't it? Because like a podcast is like joining a conversation, right? Yeah. Mm. And it's who wants to join a conversation where three of the or two of the people have got notes. Yeah. One other person hasn't got notes. The other one's not even in the room. Like that's weird. Yeah. So, yeah. Just to do it like this, hopefully, it, I think. But do you find, I guess with work, it's a bit different because obviously, like you've you got you got a finite amount of time and stuff. Yeah. And you have to make notes, but but do you find it's a similar? Sometimes you're in the room with the guys chatting about a game, and you can just be a bit of a conversation yeah, rather yeah, than. Yeah, the, the biggest, the big enemy in my job is time. Yeah, mm. you know, so if you've just come off the back of a game, you might only have forty five seconds to get to a break, and you have to hit that to the second, and you've got to also talk about the league table and the fixtures for tomorrow, for example. So you really, sometimes you find yourself being salacious, which I don't like to be. I don't want to be like a kind of headline writer type presenter. Mm -hmm. But you have only got 20 seconds to really find out how Rio Ferdinand feels about Manchester United. So instead of going, oh, it was a difficult night for Manchester United, Rio, you have to go, Rio, that isn't good enough, is it? You won titles in this football team. Now they can't even win games. What is going wrong? And then people come and go, oh, I can't believe you're always looking for a headline. You're looking to stir it. But they sort of, you're up against the clock and it's yeah. your job to get something really juicy. Yeah. You know, my job is like being a referee, really. You hopefully don't notice me and I just, I let the game flow and I get the best yeah. out of the people yeah. that are there. And I, But you do, you, it's, you know, it's a skill to to prod them otherwise they would just sit there and try and say as little as possible and yeah because they don't want to get you know no, they don't, don't want to write headlines, headlines and get in trouble yeah. have to deal all week with the press ringing up going what did you mean by that but 
And did you have someone in your ear sort of saying, like, mm. ask me about this, ask me about this? Yeah, or... a little bit. Yeah, you. Ha- I use a thing called open talkback. So you've got about seven or eight voices all. So you're hearing the oh. director and the PA wow. and the producer and the sound guy. And you're... there's a lot to, th- I suppose. There's a lot to juggle. Yeah. There's a lot to juggle. So really, when people, and if there's two criticisms that social media throws my way, number one is that he's smug, right? And I assume that that is because people think, cool, if I was on the telly talking about football next to Paul Scholes, I'd feel pretty smug. I can't because I don't feel smug I don't think I am but it's a very common criticism that maybe if someone's on the telly they just must be so, you I think know, it's an easy, crit- it's an easy criticism so, yeah, yeah. so there's that and also oh, he knows nothing about football now that may well be true but actually my job I think is 90% not knowing about football like while we're on air I am honestly thinking right how long is left yeah. have we covered the points that are necessary what are the graphics that are coming next? What is the producer saying to me? What shot is the director on? Have both the guests spoken as much as each other? Am I leaning across so there's a shadow over someone's face? How long's left on the entire part? Um, and then, at the very end of all of those other thought processes, then you're sort of trying to do your football knowledge. They're there for the football knowledge. And also, what did Rio just say? Exactly. Well, that's the other <laughs> yeah. thing. I'm just there to get us on and off air, right, as seamlessly as possible and to try and make it look good. And has there been any, to bring it back on brand to the pod, mm. has there been any blank moments, particular blank moments where things didn't work, conversation didn't work, or it really went blank, or, you know, literally no one was talking or anything like that? I suppose, I'm, in terms of blank moments, no. I've been, I suppose I'm relatively lucky that... You know, when I do feel like I feel at my most at ease and my most in control when I'm on air and I'm doing the job that you two are doing, really asking the questions. I'm not really a great, I'm not great at being interviewed. I much prefer, because I've done it all my life. Oh, I beg to differ. It's going pretty well. Sitting <laughs> and asking the questions yeah. and stuff. I, um, so, no, not really. And there's certainly been no sort of blank moments. You know, there's been moments where I w- definitely wish I'd said something or done something differently mm, yeah and you get criticism but people don't realize all the all the things that are going on in your head you know yeah. or the things that you're hearing and stuff so it's a cha- it's a challenging environment but th- it shouldn't look like a challenging environment because that's when you've done your job right it yeah. should look like an easy job mm, yeah and maybe for some people it is easy although i love presenting i find presenting easy the actual live environment of a of a sports event where you've got no auto cue, no script, and it's kind of visceral. You're reacting to what happens. It is a challenging environment, but that's what I love. That's what I love about sport. Like, I do it because people care about it. Yeah. People, it's not just on in the corner of the room filling time. People specifically tune in to watch that sports event, mm. and it's your job to make that event as exciting and as compelling as you can for those people. Mm. And you get to see amazing people at work like real high achieving elite individuals and it's one of my frustrations when people criticize sports people for being lazy or not caring or whatever you know we're talking about people who in the gym take themselves daily to a place that you and i probably have never been in our lives right to try and be the best that they can be and they're 19 years old and they're in a stadium of 70,000 people on a tv audience of millions if not billions around the world in a huge game of football Mm. And we're criticising them for a misplaced pass or a moment of petulance or a moment where they sort of lost control of themselves. Sometimes we do have to remember, like, we're talking about kids here. Yeah, 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 yeah. 100%. Like, I'm double the age of most of the people yeah. that I am yeah, discussing yeah. on the television. And that we sometimes forget that. You know, we expect them to be 
superhuman, but then we don't want them to be robots at the same time because we want to see their personality. Then we see it, and then we criticise them for having a personality we don't like. It's like, oh my goodness. We're asked, we do ask, certainly in football, I mean, Giles and I are Palace fans, and we do ask a lot of our footballers. Yeah. We ask them to be a bit of everything. Absolutely. And it's really unfair. You wouldn't mm. ask that of anyone else that works in no. either industries or... And then we have a big go at them for earning good money. Yeah. And my answer to that is, when did you last moan about what Tom Cruise earned to be in a film? Yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, what... Lawyers um, earn. Elton John earns for yeah. touring yeah. the world. Like, who, no one goes to watch a game of football for the referee, for the managers, for the board members for the owners for the directors we're there for the players mm. right give them the money and you know what when they get the money great they're paying 50% tax excellent yeah, 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 that's yeah. lovely let's let's embrace that and be pleased about it yeah. and, and I, I also think actually football's probably got a long way to go you know if Lewis mm. Hamilton's reportedly on 40-50 million quid a year well apart from Messi and Ronaldo there's no yeah. footballers earning no. that there's no Premier League player earning that sort of money and it's a billion, multi-billion pound industry. So, well, they're also only earning it until they're thirty-five. Yeah, yeah, which exactly, obviously yeah. is you know very difficult. Yeah. But what do they do after that? Well, there's big I'm numbers, isn't there? There's a, a lot of <laughs> you know a lot of footballers fall. At, was it like fifty percent of footballers, maybe not Premier League but lower league, are bankrupt mm, within yeah. ten years? Yeah, ninety well, percent of that is yeah. gambling. Yeah, like, gambling, there's a lot yeah, of problems yeah, actually. From the like you say, these high achieving people that have got all this going on, then suddenly they retire and there's nothing. And they're it, yeah, um, and I think know, the clubs obviously need. There's a responsibility from the clubs to make sure that the players, when they're retiring, have got. There aren't many industries where someone goes, "You can never do that again." Yeah, yeah. You know exactly. I mean? Your legs are gone. Yeah. You will never ever, and it's not like you will never walk in that office and type on that computer for the rest of your life. Like mm. you are saying, that you will never walk into that stadium and be adored and have your name yeah. cheered to the rafters and mm. be a hero and be a gladiator ever. That, how can you not mm. suffer a mental health problem yeah, when absolutely. you get told at 32 that you will never do that again? Yeah. I wouldn't cope. If someone said to me, no. you'll never be on the telly ever again for the rest of your life, go and find something else to do. It doesn't matter what's in your back pocket in terms of your money. No. That is hard to deal with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That buzz that you get from doing that thing you love is suddenly never gonna. I can get on a stage and tell jokes until I, the day I die. There might be no one in the audience, and they might not like the jokes, but, but I can, can still do it. Do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I still do it. And get was, that sports, buzz. was sports broadcasting the like where you wanted to be? Yeah. Well, I grew up watching Des Lynam. Yeah. Well, so, we did. and yeah. I actually, I went. I remember when I was on Kids Telly, I actually had a meeting with um, the head of talent for the BBC at the time, and I went and said to them, "Look, I just want to be." the next Des Lynam, I want you to give me a job. And at the time I was hosting a game show on Children's BBC called Mobster Lobster, <laughs> where I dressed up as a pink lobster in the Blue Peter Garden, ran around popping balloons with foam inside and big starfish were worth 10 pounds and small starfish Got to do the yards, dude. Got to <laughs> But this person sort of said to me, I've seen you hosting Mobster Lobster. And you're perfect. We don't know the total opposite. We don't employ people like you was the exact phrase. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So I remember leaving that meeting thinking, ah, right, I need to find another way of doing this. But thankfully there was a guy called Niall Sloan who was uh, at the BBC at the time. He's now head of sport for ITV. I called him and I just said, look, I really want to show you that I want to do this. Um, and he said, okay, then. And he gave me an ISDN kit and I'd finish work on a Saturday hosting a show called Sports Round for Children's BBC and I'd go off travelling to games and in those days it was the lower reaches because I was starting out, you mm. know, it was third or fourth division football matches, you know, 
Brighton when they were really struggling playing at the old athletic stadium that sort of mm. stuff and I'd drive myself there park up walk in set my kit up watch the games and I might have I was lucky do 20 second inserts into uh, BBC Sports final score programme or into Radio 5 Live one or the other um, and this is only we're only talking here about 2007 so like a year before I landed the Formula 1 job mm. um, and but that was that was a period that again you know when you join the dots backwards the fact that I was willing to show them that even though, like, because on Kids Teddy, you feel you've got to a certain place in your career. You think you've reached a certain level. Mm. And that is asking you to go right back to the start yeah. and go again. And I was sort of willing to do that. Um, I think that was probably quite a crucial moment for me. Yeah, I, th- I think you need to be, again, right at the start of the conversation, we said about being open to doing stuff like that. Yeah. Even being open to going back to the start, but proving yourself. And you were doing that by asking people and saying, yeah, I'll go down to Brighton. Mm. I mean, I wouldn't go down to Brighton being a Palace fan, but, you know, I would, you'd, you'd do these things to prove yourself. And, yeah. and, and if you don't do that, then really the well, opportunities again, don't come. Well, again, yourself out there, which is what we were saying earlier. Yeah, and it, and, it, and it turned out to be a good thing. And I, me- mm. I remember um, I then was on the train coming back from somewhere and I got a phone call from him to ask if I could host Final Score, which was like a big deal for wow, me. Wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. The first thing I ever hosted for BBC Sport. And the day before I did it, I was sitting at the desk sort of writing my script for the day and Niall came in and he said to the PA, um, who was the sort of person responsible for all the logistics in the gallery, he said to the PA, he said, um, tomorrow, and this was final score is on air from like half two till six o'clock. Mm. And then it only goes on to BBC One for that short bit when the yeah. results happen. The rest of it's all on the red button. Yeah. And he said, can you just do me a favour when Jake's in the chair tomorrow, can you just record 20 minutes? But you can choose which 20 minutes it is, I don't mind. Any any part of the day, and that was basically a message to me: you better be on, you better be you on the be money on the for the whole time because I'm watching this. And then, two or three shows later, I was asked to host Football Focus again, big deal for yeah. me. And as I went into the studio for that moment, he was sitting on the chair in the studio, and he went, "Have a good one, don't mess it up. <laughs> big day for you." But again, like that was a, that was a test, yeah, and yeah, I'm yeah. glad I had that test, you know, because I think. If you'd have asked me a few years before what would happen to you in that situation, I would have said, oh, I'd melt, I'd collapse, yeah, I wouldn't deal yeah. with the pressure. So the fact that I didn't, I remember, f- like, I now look back with quite a pr- sense of pride, really, that I was like, yeah, I was tested there, and I bloody well rose that challenge, and that was me in my early 20s, really. But did you feel that at the time, those times, thinking, oh, I have just come through, I've, that's been another sort of challenge, and I've come so. through it, Yeah, I think and actually so. I'm doing all right here? Yeah, well, I think, from what I remember... I, I was walking back into the studio at that point a few minutes before an air and I'd gone to the toilet to sort of talk to myself for a second and say, listen, this is a big moment for you. Which I suppose now you look at as a sort of like meditation moment or a chance to centre yourself. In those days, it was just like, I better have a word with myself. So I basically had a word with myself and said, listen, big moment, don't mess it up, trust yourself, go for it, just see what happens, you know. And it worked out. Yeah, it worked out, okay. Also, I want to apologise to people from Brighton, actually, really. Or, I, really I like Brighton, isn't no, it? No, you I don't. Yeah. Lion, Palace fans, come on now. I don't mind them. They're an all right club, to be fair. They, you know, they're okay. Yeah, they're doing well, aren't they? They are doing all right, yeah. We're doing all right as well. well we are doing all right, yeah. yeah. We're doing okay. Norwich, though. Yeah. Ah, not so good. It's a shame, really, because our club is made of a goalkeeper on a free, yeah. couple of full-backs. I really like the manager the academy. Well, Brilliant, yeah. Daniel Farco. Yeah. You know, we're a... We're a hodgepodge of youngsters yeah. and freebies and smart signings, and it would be good for the Premier League if we survived. Mm. I doubt we will, but we're sadly just shy in terms of quality. Yeah, yeah. Given it a bloody good go. I keep yeah. Todd Cantwell keeps going in and out of my fantasy team, and yeah, each week I do it the wrong one. He's, he's on the bench, well. gets ten points, yeah. comes in, doesn't do anything. No. I can't quite. That's get it youth, right? right? The uh, 
the sort of the the fact that he's young is probably yeah. why he's a little bit inconsistent. Yeah, exactly. That happens. Yeah. It does. Well, look, shall we round off the yeah. pod by asking Jake what we ask all our guests, mm. which is just your advice for anyone listening that might be going through blank moments. And again, that's really interpretive, so it could yeah. be mental health issues or literal blank moments or anything. What sort of advice would you? Yeah, pass I, well, on? I can only really advise this from what I've learned myself, I guess. So, the number one piece of advice that I would give to anyone, and you hear it a lot, is making sure that you talk to people. You know, it doesn't need to necessarily be someone who's close to you or someone who's around you. Mm. It can be anybody. But please, whatever it is that is causing you a difficult moment in your life, um, share it and talk to people about it. But I guess the other big thing for me is you just don't know what those moments are going to do for you. And it could be the best thing that has ever happened, right? Now, it might not seem like it at the time, Mm. But what is the point of thinking anything other than I'm going to turn this around into a into a positive? And my final sort of mantra for really living with everything in 2020 is whatever it is that's causing your blank moment, regardless of the fault, take on the responsibility. And that is the best way forwards and the best way out of it. Because when you do come out the other side, which I'm confident you will, you will know the reason is because you took on the responsibility and you dealt with it. Yeah. Best way Lovely. Through. Well, I'm going to take on the responsibility of ending the podcast. Well so, uh, Jake Whose Humphrey, fault is that? Yeah, Charles's <laughs> fault. I'll take the responsibility. Um, Jake Humphrey, thank you so pleasure. much. Thanks, thanks for, for the us. coffee and thanks for the chat. I really no, enjoyed thank that. Thank you. that was jake humphrey on the blank podcast what a great pod what a nice guy really yeah, nice guy. guy yeah and like i really appreciate how open he was with with all aspects of his life mm. really from social media to you know the, the sort of difficult being bullied at school yeah, and, yeah um you know difficult times moving to london and actually it's quite empowering to listen to that and see where he is now and think well, no, these, you know, you can overcome anything, really. Yeah, yeah, and if you keep putting yourself out there, and, you know, obviously he sort of said he believes in fate and stuff, but obviously he's also um, put himself out there for things, and he's and he's managed to, you know, carve out a really fantastic career for himself just because he's, you know, he's very, obviously very, very talented and good at what he does. Yeah, but it's true. I mean, the other day, I... I because I've totally got this new agent, so I'm sort mm. of using it as an excuse to get back in contact with people that I've been working with last mm. year. And saying, I've got a new agent now, so I'm getting back in other work. And I did that the other week and got an email back straight away saying, oh, we'd love to work with you, Jimmy. Are we being contacted? Oh, that's fantastic. It, it, yeah. it, it reminded me you know, of that from what Jake was yeah, saying. Like yeah, absolutely, yeah. Chucking yourself out there a little bit yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And not being, um, you know, not being afraid to go for things, but also not, you know, taking those knockbacks on the chin and, yeah, yeah. and using them as, yeah. a, as a way of fueling, you know, your, yeah. your career and going forward. Absolutely. Good stuff. Yeah. Well, look, thank you, Jake, so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Don't forget to subscribe. Please subscribe. And if you want to send us a message, you can. Our handle is... At BlankPod. On vo- various channels. Not Snapchat, because we're too old for that. <laughs> not Snapchat. TikTok, should we, get on? we should probably get on TikTok, shouldn't we? Really? Mm, it's the next... I'm going to get on TikTok. Are you? Yeah. Yeah, it seems, well, it's probably it good fun. for your stuff. Well, it's good for my, it's good for comedy, but also it seems quite fun at the moment. I'm sure that will it will get ruined slo- slowly. <laughs> but it seems the, like a fun channel, so well, I might try. Talking about dark things, I recently watched. Um, Always a good start. Too, well, it? it's because you said it, it's nice at the moment. <laughs> yeah. It could slowly deteriorate. 
I watched this Netflix documentary called Don't Fuck With Cats. I've heard about this. And um, I've literally watched it the last few days. It blew my mind. I mean, really? it was insane. Really? Yeah, I mean, you know that sort of, you know, life stranger in fiction. Thing, yeah. yeah. It was insane. It wow, was insane. I need to watch yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It's... it's um, Is it it's proper dark? It's very, very dark. And... Okay. Um, yeah, and quite harrowing in parts, actually. Mm, okay. So not anyone for the light, you know, it's not for the faint of heart. Yeah. But I yeah. might wait a bit then to, to <laughs> yeah. watch it when I'm yeah. ready. Yeah. It, it's, it was fan- fantastic. I've but, heard a lot yeah. of really good things but, about but it. But yeah. actually, just, you know, be aware that YouTube has um, got, a, you know, has, has taken some dark turns in, in the past. Hmm. Anyway, on that, TikTok, on that note. TikTok might be the one to go for. <laughs> anyway, on that note. Uh, <laughs> uh, Charles been lovely podding with you oh, of as course. ever yeah thank you and uh, thanks for our listeners have a wonderful week yeah, and we'll see you, see you again week. soon yeah bye bye this is a glass box media podcast